When you scan the Bible section in the bookstore or search for a new Bible online, all the translations and versions can be a little overwhelming. Today on Ask Pastor Mike, we're learning how to exercise discernment when choosing a new Bible. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. You may know that Mike Fabares is not only your teacher on this program, but he also shepherds the flock of Compass Bible Church in Southern California. And as a shepherd, he's keen on guiding you towards an accurate, reliable translation of the Bible. So right now, I'm turning the mic over to Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, for this week's edition of Ask Pastor Mike. We're learning the important factors to consider when choosing a translation of Scripture. Jay? Thank you, Dave. I am here with Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike, we have a question today about Bible translations. A listener asks, what is the difference between all the Bible translations? Mm. Is one better than another? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, yeah, I mean, certainly some are better than others. Uh, but it's a pretty complicated question. It sounds like a simple question, but it's a complicated question. I mean, there's at least three factors we've got to think about. Uh, let's just take the one that comes to mind immediately, and that is, you know, when you're translating from one language to the next, I mean, you have to take words that are in another language and bring them into our language. And how do you do that? How close do you stick to the words that are there? In other words, I guess the best way to do this is to illustrate it. When Jesus is walking on water, Mark chapter 6, verse 51, if I were to read the literal words of the Greek text and just bring one word over at a time, let me just give you how verse 51 reads. And very out of excess in themselves, they were astonished. That'd be the way you just translate every word across. Well, that sounds very simple. Uh, it's very hard for anybody to kind of process. It sounds like you're, you know, almost in another language. I mean, you have to take that and very out of excess in themselves, they were astonished. That's a mouthful to try and explain something that every translation is going to now try to put into words in our language that is close as possible to what's being said there. Like the ESV, the translation we translate out of, does that in four words. They were utterly astounded. The NIV, they were completely amazed. And then you get into some that are just trying to express it as powerfully as that Greek text. I mean, the Phillips translation, and they were scared out of their wits. Or the message, if they're trying to put it in just in the lingo of the day, they were stunned and shaking their heads. I mean, you've got to figure out how you're going to take these words across, how literally you're going to bring them across. So when we talk about translations, most people say, well, I want a literal translation. I want it to be brought over as literally as possible. But you got to be careful in saying that. You want that without risking the fact that you have to be able to read this and read it smoothly as someone communicating in, in our language. And every translation of any language it works in this way. So that's really the first thing is how literal are you going to be? The second one is kind of this historical distance. In other words, there are things that are idioms in ancient Greek or Hebrew that you kind of have to decide, do I let people know what these idioms mean in our language, or do we just bring them straight across? Classic examples is, gird up the loins of your minds. You know, Peter writes this about how we should be ready in our own thinking. I mean, that's a concept that we don't have anymore because no one's wearing long robes and having to tuck their robe into their belt. So you have to decide, how do you translate that historical difference in terms of the idioms that are on the page. And so you're looking for one, I suppose, that is as literal as possible, and yet 
it doesn't leave you looking in a Bible dictionary every paragraph to figure out what these idioms mean. Now, lastly, and this is for those that are informed about how we come to take our Bibles into our language, we have to first know what am I going to base this translation on? Because we don't have the original documents that Moses wrote. We don't have the original manuscripts that Paul or Peter wrote. So what we have is copies. Now we have more copies and as ancient a set of copies as any document of antiquity. In other words, we have the best, most reliable ancient book that's ever been written, given to us in the Bible. And yet we can't just pull out of a file cabinet somewhere the letter that Paul wrote. So we've got to base it on the best manuscripts that we have available. In the Old Testament, for instance, you could just base your translations on the Masoretic family of documents, which you know are faithfully done by Jews uh, throughout the history of Judaism, or you could include, well, do I take into consideration the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Do I take into consideration the very, very ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint? You'd think, well, I'd want all of those manuscripts on the table, so to speak, the proverbial table, to decide what the original writing actually was. And while there's just very fine and very small variance between these documents, you do want a translation that's going to translate this text from all the available best manuscripts that are out there. So we've got lots of manuscripts. We have lots of ancient manuscripts. We should consider them all. We should make it as literal as possible and yet readable. And we should try to bridge the historical distance as much as we can without just completely ignoring some of the rich idioms of the Bible. I'm sure all of those criteria probably span a couple of different versions. Is there one that I should be using over the other one? Should I go with what my pastor's using, what no. my church is using? How do I choose? Sure, yeah, and, and I guess it depends on what church you're in, but I would say yes. If your church is led by a solid pastor, he's been trained, he's gifted, he's called, He's made a wise decision about the translation he's using. Then I'd say use your pastor's translation because it's great to sit in a church where the Bible's being taught and as he reads and explains the text and then seeks to apply it to us, that we've got that same translation in our lap. So use the translation your pastor uses in the service, but certainly it's not a bad idea to use a lot of the uh, respected translations that we have every day in your own reading and study of the Bible. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I trust this has been a helpful discussion for our listeners, and uh, we're going to continue this uh, conversation with a message you gave called Comparing and Evaluating Modern Translations. John Wycliffe translated the Bible in 1382, and it was him and his fellow scholars. It wasn't too long after all of this was now being distributed and copied that in 1408, it was illegal in the kingdom there in England to read the Bible in English. It was outlawed. Anybody caught reading the Bible, anybody caught with Wycliffe's translation of the Bible was uh, liable to punishment. This was a pivotal moment in history. Obviously, Gutenberg, which we learn about for a variety of reasons, after centuries of painstaking copying, the best of it done either in the Old Testament uh, scribal community or in the monasteries of the medieval church. We now have a fabulous invention called the, uh, the printing press, movable type. And uh, this was an amazing thing. It was the vehicle that would fuel the Reformation. The message of the Reformers was going to be accelerated and made possible in a new kind of way, expedited through Gutenberg's printing press. 
Now, of course, there were a few things printed on his printing press before the Bible, but the first real complete masterpiece, the real accomplishment of movable type was the Bible, of course, the most important book in the world, and it was printed up in Latin, you need to know, printed in 1455 by Gutenberg, and there's a lot of history surrounding that, and, you know, he had some help, and they split up the work, and uh, very interesting uh, history there that maybe you can take some time to read about. Gutenberg, of course, from Germany. This is 100 years after Wycliffe Now, of course, talk about the Reformation. Uh, Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation, we call him, because he had all the concerns that would reach an apex after the printing press was now in place with a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived, just to give you a frame of reference here, from 1483 to 1546. Now, of course, he was a part of the system. He was studying to be an Augustinian monk, And uh, yet he was increasingly frustrated the more he studied Galatians and Romans in particular with the corruption of the church, the sale of indulgences, and the attitude that you don't need to read the Bible, uh, you lowly people. Just listen to the priests and the leaders of the church and you'll be okay and we can make up our doctrines as we go along. And he also recognized that uh, the solution was the same as Wycliffe's, and that is if you get the Bible in the hands of the people, they can begin to compare their teachers to the written word of God, and they'll realize, hey, this doesn't add up. And that's exactly uh, what happened. And though Luther wanted to reform the church, obviously there was a gigantic break in the church. Well, his big accomplishment for his uh, kinfolk was translating the Bible uh, into German. I'd love to say more about Martin Luther, but the reason he comes up in the history of the English Bible is because he was the catalyst, and under the umbrella of his powerful leadership, uh, we had now the opportunity for the English Bible to be propagated. One more guy that may not seem like it's part of the history of the English Bible that we need to know about is a guy named Erasmus of Rotterdam, and Erasmus was a Dutch scholar. Uh, He was over in Cambridge, uh, and he was a genius uh, in languages, and he was commissioned to uh, put together a translation of the... uh, Actually, it was his passion, and he wanted to put together a translation of an improvement on the Latin Vulgate. I mean, he retranslated the Latin text from a newly constructed critical edition of the Greek New Testament. It was huge, because everyone used it. As a matter of fact, that was the standard Greek New Testament on which every translation was based uh, for about 200 years, maybe more. The great thing about Erasmus, and if you ever get a chance to read uh, some things about Erasmus, you'll realize he wasn't just a dutiful uh, you know, scholar in Cambridge. He really did share the concerns of the Reformation. He felt like there was corruption in the church and he wanted it fixed. Uh, he did what he could uh, in his work, which was pivotal in God's plan. Uh, but you can read his, uh, his heart in many of his writings, and he was prolific. He really wanted the Bible in the hands of the people, which was the cry of the Reformation. If we want a church that is functioning properly, it needs to be functioning according to the law and the testimony, because if you don't function according to that, you're operating in utter darkness. So we've got to get the Bible in the hands of the people. Here's one quotation from Erasmus' writings. Christ wishes his mysteries to be published as widely as possible. 
I wish that they were translated into all languages of all Christian people, that they might be read and known. I wish that the farmer might sing parts of them at his plow and the weaver at his shuttle. That was anathema in the minds of the hierarchy of the church because they knew they were running a scam (laughs) and they didn't want people undermining their authority by reading the Bible for themselves. It was kind of a, don't ask me questions, just trust me on this. And whenever leaders say that, that's, that's the wrong kind of leadership. You need people that are always open to saying, test these things according to the word of God. Okay. If you're getting, there's a lot of names I'm throwing at you, but if you can remember two, would you please remember, uh, John, Wycliffe and William Tyndale. <laughs> Those are the two most important people that you'll want to stand in line to meet when you are in the New Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you'll be in the English group and, and you'll want to meet these two guys. William Tyndale, he's, he was an Oxford professor. And what he did that was unique, now remember, Wycliffe translated the Bible into English and really fueled the Reformation, but he did it from Latin. It didn't have the advantage of Gutenberg's movable type. We didn't have Erasmus's critical Greek New Testament. Now you put all those things together, you got now a movement that Martin Luther has gotten going. You got a printing press now that's able to print Bibles. You got a Greek New Testament now that it's at least been weighed by different Greek manuscripts, most of them late. There's really none earlier than the 12th century, but still you got a somewhat critical Greek New Testament. And now you've got a guy that is able, with his ability and his team, to translate the Bible into English for the first time from Greek with the advantage of Gutenberg's movable type. So in 1525, we have the English translation of the New Testament from Greek, and the Old Testament was not far behind it. Now, this had credibility. This had people excited now we've just upped the ante with a very reliable English translation and the ability to spread it like wildfire because of the printing press. So the Catholic Church in England, frustrated, angry, they were red, hot, or white, I guess is what we say, right? White, hot, anger, and they just could not hate William Tyndale enough. First thing they did was they banned the Bible in England. You could not be found. If you were found with William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, it was bad enough to have Wycliffe's version. But if you had William Tyndale's version of the English Bible, it was like a, a uh, you know, it was like the plague. It was banned. They had to smuggle them in to try and keep the reform of the church going in England. Uh, Tyndale, of course, was run out of town. He ended up going to Germany to end up printing his Bible. He got as many people as possible involved in that. And of course, the church finally got a hold of him. I say the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and they burned him at the stake. William Tyndale, his um, Bible, you may not know this, but if you've ever read a King James Bible, you've read William Tyndale's Bible for the most part. But overall, about 80% of the verbiage, the language, the vocabulary, the translation work of William Tyndale and his team ends up in the King James Version of the Bible. So... This is a gigantic accomplishment. One more guy that you need to know about, Miles Coverdale. Of course, Henry VIII had some problems, as you remember, and um, church would not grant him that divorce that he so badly wanted. 
And uh, upon the whole turnaround there with Anne Boleyn and all that, there, there was a fantastic political maneuver by Miles Coverdale. Because this was the debate. If you really wanted reform in the church, you liked William Tyndale and you wanted his Bible to succeed. Well, Coverdale took the opportunity with the divorce of the king to get this Bible actually printed in England. Uh, He did it through a lot of channels, through his political savvy. But ultimately, the thing that, that won this thing over was he printed this thing and dedicated it to the queen, Anne Boleyn, the new wife of the king. It was the first printed and distributed Bible in England that was done with the blessing of the government, thanks to the political savvy of Miles Coverdale. There is one more Bible that's worth mentioning, Matthew's Bible, a guy named John Rogers here in 1537. John Rogers publishes a Bible, uh, and it was actually with the king's decree. It was literally the first authorized version of the Bible, Matthew's Bible. Cromwell calls Coverdale to revise the Matthews Bible, and it results in the Great Bible. I just want to mash all these together, and these are all known as different things. The Great Bible, Cromwell's Bibles, Cramner's Bible, the Chained Bible, uh, which is my favorite one, because these now were produced by the church and the Church of England, which is now newly Protestant because of the policies of the king. They all got a Bible. Every church now got a Bible in English. Well, we'd had the Latin Vulgate in the Bibles that the priests were privileged to read, but now we had a Bible in every church. Now, if you wanted to read the Bible in your language, you had to go to church, and they put them on stands, and because they didn't want them stolen, they chained them to a post or a podium. And so this was why it it picked up the name called the, the Chained Bible. Now, give you the history here. King James assumes the throne, King James, and he is now wants desperately to be the king of, uh, of the head of the church. Problem is, the guys that really have power in England, in the Protestant circles, now that we have, again, this ping-pong flip-flop back to a Protestant kingdom, are the Puritans. And the Puritans love the Geneva Bible. They love the Geneva Bible because they love the notes in the Geneva Bible, and they are sympathetic to the Geneva Bible. Well, King James isn't going to like the Geneva Bible. So there's a guy in the Hampton Court in the southwest corner of London. They hold this court. John Reynolds steps up, and he says, almost out of the blue, at least this is how history goes down, why don't we have a new Bible? Because he knows King James is not going to support the Geneva Bible. And the Puritan, it's what John Reynolds is, he was the president of uh, Merton College at Oxford. He says, listen, we don't want the bishop's Bible because we don't want all that stuff that goes with it. So he politically says, let's create a new Bible. And King James, everyone's just one of those situations where you're all quiet and, and King James is there and he says, yes, it's a good idea. And his line in history was, I've, ne- I've yet to read a well-translated English Bible, which is nonsense. But he said, fine, we'll do, we'll do a new one. Basically take the Tyndale's text and strip it of all of its notes that make it feel like a Puritan Bible or an Anglican Bible, and we'll create kind of a middle-of-the-road Bible with, with lesser notes that relate to any partisan. But it's, the, it's an ecumenical, peace, political Bible. Puritans like Geneva, King did not. Suggested a new translation, said all that. So we have the King James Bible, produced, 1611. New American Standard Bible, some of you love that, I know that. It's a 1970s rework of the American Standard Version. 
couple things I don't care for. One is the real wooden grammar, especially in the Old Testament. Very hard to read in some places. And I don't like the reverting back to old English pronouns, these and thous, when it comes to addressing God. It just seems so bizarre and artificial. But they made that decision, the Lockman Foundation translation team. Uh, the RSV, Revised Standard Version, 1952 rework of the American Standard Version. It was bold. It didn't care about tradition. Not well received by conservative Christians. New Revised Standard was a revision, obviously, of the RSV. Uh, it was the first translation, well, at least in that line of English translations, to consider the Dead Sea Scroll readings and some more manuscript discoveries from 1952. So it became, for a lot of people, the scholar's Bible. It was been preferred in a lot of seminaries across the country. The message, the 2002 Eugene Peterson paraphrase, and while he does know languages and he's a well-educated man, this is really not a um, serious translation. He actually is quoted as saying, my goal was to give it a street language. So that's why it has such funny translations at times. I mean, it may be interesting to read, but it's not a serious translation. Now, the English Standard Version. You should know this by now, but the phrase they like, not only is it a, a formal equivalent, but they like to go even further and say it's an essentially literal translation. Good thing that I like about it, and you should too, is it retains theological terminology. It doesn't try to water it down or move it away or you know, simplify it, and that's good. We have words like justification and propitiation and repentance. Those are all kept, whereas in other translations that are for, uh, thought for thought, oftentimes we don't have those anymore. I mean, it's a well-liked translation, and it's being hardly received. So that's a good thing. All right. This is all for your edification. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the way you've orchestrated our lives to put us in this particular place at this particular time. We know to whom much is given, much is required, so we want to be faithful stewards to let the word of Christ richly dwell in us, to be filled with our up to the brim in our hearts with the word of God, and when people are seeking their own impressions or ideas or thoughts, may we return, as Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony to know what the truth is. In Psalm 43, may we be passionate about the light and the truth shining forth from your word, giving us clarity about who you are. We love it very much. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point and a portion of his message called Comparing and Evaluating Modern Translations. Listen to the full unedited version when you go to focalpointradio.org. We trust that today's message helped you think through the best Bible version for you. At Focal Point, we continually strive to help you be fully equipped to handle God's Word. And you can be part of the team that makes this happen when you donate today. Your gifts fuel our ministry, ensuring that these broadcasts reach our nationwide audience. So if you share our passion for accurate line-by-line, verse-by-verse study, will you join with us today and help magnify our reach in the coming year? It's quick and easy to give. Just call 888-320-5885 or give online at focalpointradio.org. And when you donate today, we'll say thanks with an informative book called The Ultimate Guide to Defend Your Faith. Author Doug Powell is a respected voice in the world of apologetics, and this book lays out some of the best arguments in defense of the Christian faith. You'll learn how to argue for the existence of God, the reliability of Scripture, and the reality of miracles. 
Plus, you'll learn how to answer the common question, how can a good God allow the existence of evil? In an age of increasing moral and spiritual relativism, this book will anchor you in the truth. And again, we'll send you a copy with our thanks for your generous gift in support of this ministry. So be sure to get in touch by calling 888-320-5885 or by going to focalpointradio.org. And remember to ask for your copy of The Ultimate Guide to Defend Your Faith. If you prefer to send your donation and request by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, so glad to have you with us. And be sure to come back again next time as we continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries. 